Hello, friends. My name's Tammy Simon, and I'm the founder of Sounds True, and I want to welcome you to the Sounds True podcast, Insights at the Edge. I also want to take a moment to introduce you to Sounds True's new membership community and digital platform. It's called Sounds True One. Sounds True One features original, premium, transformational docu-series, community events, classes to start your day and relax in the evening, special weekly live shows, including a video version of Insights at the Edge with an after-show community question and answer session with featured guests. I hope you'll come join us, explore, come have fun with us, and connect with others. You can learn more at join.soundstrue.com. I also want to take a moment and introduce you to the Sounds True Foundation, our nonprofit that creates equitable access to transformational tools and teachings. You can learn more at soundstruefoundation.org. And in advance, thank you for your support. My guest today is Dr. Sarah King. Dr. Sarah King is a mother, an artist, a neuroscientist, political and learning scientist, education philosopher, social entrepreneur, public speaker, and certified yoga and mindfulness meditation instructor. She is currently a postdoctoral fellow in neurology at Oregon Health and Science University, and she's the co-director of Mobius, a nonprofit that supports the development of liberatory technology. That organization, Mobius, also partners with MindHeart Consulting, which is a scientific consulting firm that Dr. Sarah King founded, through which she offers a science of social justice framework for healing intergenerational trauma. Dr. Sarah King and I have a wild conversation about how she experiences her very talented and mysterious self from the inside and what she's doing here offering, are you ready for this? Gifts from the future. Here's an edgy, insights at the edgy conversation with Dr. Sarah King. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Sarah King. Hello, hello. Thank you so much for having me here today, Tammy. It's a joy. On Sounds True One, the new digital platform that we've launched at Sounds True, we're focusing in the first part of this year on self-compassion and self-compassion as a really critical skill, a skill that we can develop on the spiritual journey. And I'd love to start right here at the beginning of our conversation do you feel that self-compassion is a critical skill when it comes to the spiritual journey? And if so, why? Mm. Well, first of all, I love this question for so many reasons. And I'm very excited to have the opportunity to um, perhaps add a little bit of complexity to the term. Um, but before I even launch into that, I really want to thank my ancestors and your ancestors for the incredible infinite acts of self-compassion that allowed them to survive to the point 
where we could be here together today. I think that self-compassion um, is really so much of the relational ties that bind us together across space and time. And I truly feel that none of us would be here without that capacity, right? This capacity to <clears throat> really um, witness, lovingly witness and recognize uh, suffering, to be present to suffering um, and the ways in which when we develop a capacity to be present with our own suffering, then that naturally can be extended outward towards others in this spirit of seeing one another, receiving one another, being with one another um, in a way that is uh, deeply acknowledging that in this human body, we're constantly experiencing impermanence. And we are always coming up against the edge of our own mortality. And that just mortality and impermanence together, for me, cause um, a certain tenderness in my heart. Because at the end of the day, no matter what it is, our, our, our social or cultural or, or political stations or, or beliefs or any of those things, these differences, which um, get talked about a lot in terms of what's dividing us, what's tearing us apart on a societal level. At the end of the day, you know, I think that we all have the capacity to have real tenderness for the fact that these bodies fade away. And in response to that, there's so much grief that all of us has to carry in the course of our lives. And I think that um, there really is an upswelling of grief, collective grief and collective trauma um, that I feel very sensitive to collectively in our society right now as sort of the vestiges of this pandemic that we just got through. Um, and it's affected us all, every single one of us, you know, and man, if that doesn't strike tenderness in the heart, I, I don't, I don't know what does. You know, it's, mm -hmm. it's interesting that you start there with this notion of the collective grief that many of us feel as an upswell right now at this time. And sometimes I wonder what's personal, what's collective, and how would I even know the difference? And I know looking at that is something that is one of the many themes of your work, how what's personal affects the collective, how the collective affects the personal. But what about just like, I don't even know which is which sometimes. <laughs> yeah, and that's okay. That, that kind of um, confusion, I think, is really relatable. Um, one of the things I love to talk about in my work around intergenerational trauma is, you know, oftentimes I have people come up to me after a, a lecture or a talk of some sort, <clears throat> and they'll tell me a really powerful story about some kind of um, painful situation that they are navigating either with their health or their relationships or something. And they'll say something to me about this reactivity that they're experiencing, right, in this context. And they're like, and I can't help it. I just keep reacting over and over. You know, it's anger, it's rage, it's fear. It's so complex, it's overwhelming to me and my body. What do I do? And one of the things that I have noticed is that there is 
so much shame and guilt, but mostly shame that we experience out of the ways in which we get reactive in the experience of our traumas. And one of the things that I like to suggest is maybe that reaction that you're having in this situation is very personal and individual, right? When we're talking about this word, the self, right? I have this seemingly individual body with an individual history and I have my thoughts and my memories and all of these things that are swirling inside of me that I consistently think of because of my egoic mind as me, I, the self. But I think that when we dig a little bit deeper, we will find that a lot of our thoughts and memories and dispositions and the things that we're experiencing internally, a lot of these things have been passed down to us from our ancestors. A lot of these things are being absorbed by, uh, by us from the surrounding culture and society and the environment. We are so porous as human beings. We just have this interesting perception that we are quite solid that is created by the mind and the brain. We are incredibly porous and constantly processing those things through us. And oftentimes people express to me that they are incredibly relieved to know that all these big sensations in their bodies don't belong to a singular eye. That is more of a collective, there can be kind of like a, an ebb and a flow between this experience of me as an individual self and me as a collection of memories and experiences that are being passed down to me, you know? Um, and I think that when we really take the time to investigate what our ancestors have been through in the course of our lives, we start to develop this opportunity to experience ourselves as an intergenerational self. I am not just me, this singular body, but rather I am a collection of all of the experiences of all of my ancestors stretching all the way back in a line behind me, thousands, millions of beings. And then on top of that, I love to also play with the idea that we humans have the capacity to sense into our descendants those beings who will be here long after we are gone. And we are interconnected, interdependent in this web of being that is constantly passing energy and information through us. And that is exquisitely empowering because what it means is that potentially what we're experiencing right now, it really doesn't make sense to frame it as like our fault. Okay, but let me let me ask you let me ask you a question about this because and then I'm gonna I'm gonna read one of my favorite quotes from your work. But before we get yes. there, I just want to ask a question. So I can appreciate this idea that the pain and the reactivity I'm feeling may not be personal. It may be a result of intergenerational trauma that I've inherited. But I don't yes. necessarily feel relief when I mm. have that insight. I mm -hmm. feel burdened by ah. the the pain of what has come before that's mm -hmm. operating in me at levels I you know don't feel I have a whole lot of control over that now mm -hmm. it's my, I have to transform in my lifetime and yeah. I feel kind of burdened by it not relieved so I'm curious what yeah. your thought is about that and how to shift to a liberatory perspective yes this burden that you're pointing out is so real. It's so true. And I would stop, I would posit to say 
that a lot of the people who are suffering deeply from um, depression and anxiety and even suicidal ideation right now are carrying that same weightiness, that same feeling of, of burden inside of themselves. It's real. But I also believe that um, there are many ceremonial ritual practices that have been passed down through time from our ancestors, right? Um, for some of them, they would be religious practices. For some, they're contemplative practice, contemplative practices or different types of dance or even engaging with plant medicine. And in the space of these practices, we begin to find that there's a greater degree of choice that we have in terms of how we are meeting with that sensation of burden. That sensation of burden isn't who you are. It is a temporary experience that you have the power and capacity to respond to with a whole suite of tools which can be learned, one of which would be self-compassion, right? One of which would be, mm, uh, you know, um, developing this capacity to um, turn towards the experience of our suffering with as much loving kindness as we can possibly muster. And most importantly, I think that we are turning and practicing this loving kindness and loving awareness, not just by ourselves, but in community. Because what it is, this burden that you're naming that we're carrying, it is way too big a sensation for us to think that we can possibly approach by ourselves. Dr. King, could you give me an example from your intergenerational self of something that felt like a burden that through ceremony or some things through a ritual of some kind or a practice of some kind, you were able to transform and how that went for you? Yeah, absolutely. I would love to share that. Um, you know, <clears throat> I have this really potent memory of uh, being in the fifth grade. And so I was younger than a lot of my classmates. I think I was 10 years old and most of my classmates were 11 going on 12. And I was going to a little Catholic school in this tiny little rural town. And I remember I had a friend who was a little boy and I wanted to go over his house and play with him, right? Just such a natural inclination. We have a great time on the playground. Let's take this to your house. And he said, okay, I'm gonna go home and I'm gonna ask my mom. And he comes back the next day and he's acting so strange. You know, I thought, do I smell? Do I, you know, why, why are you avoiding me? And I asked, well, you know, what's up? Am I gonna come and hang out? And he looks at me and he says, he throws his brow and he gets really quiet. And he says, um, I don't really know how else to say this, but you're black. And my mom says, we don't have black folks over to our house, right? Now, in that moment of time, at 10 years old, I actually didn't have a racialized consciousness. I did not think of myself as being a Black person. I knew that I was more darker skinned than the other kids in my class. And I associated that with, yes, my African ancestry but I didn't have any thoughts of race in my mind. I didn't think of him as white or me as black. And it sent me into this deep, dark spiral. I was so 
it was a type of rejection and pain that felt way bigger than me. And I remember sitting there for the rest of that day thinking to myself, why does this hurt so bad? I don't even know what he means. And I went home to talk to my mom about it. And it was the first time that she and I had a very pointed conversation about, okay, here in the United States, there is this social construction called race. And it is attached to this history of white supremacy and slavery and um, racism, um, all the way leading up. She, she took me on this whole journey from the War of Independence to the Civil War, um, to the fact that she grew up in the segregated South. She told me stories about how it felt, you know, <clears throat> just trying to go to restaurants or trying to get a drink of water or even um, having to be some of the first Black people to integrate her school and how it felt for her as a child when she was just like, I'm just a kid. I'm just living life here. You know, what do you, what do you mean I'm subhuman? What do you mean I'm second class? What, what do you mean I can't have the same things as these other people? These are people. I'm a person. And that was the first time that I really got this sense of burden in my heart where I was like, you mean to tell me that there is this phenomena of racism that is a social phenomena that was developed. It didn't exist for all of humankind. It was a creation. It was something, it, it, it was a perception of difference that was created in order to substantiate the development of slavery in the United States. And I, as a little girl, 10 years old, you mean to tell me I have to carry that? You mean to tell me I have to somehow respond to that for the rest of my life? And that was a lot, you know, to feel like centuries of burden landing in this small body and small being. And then to ask myself, you know, it seemed to be kind of like a fork in the road moment for me. And I was like, so how do I respond? Do I respond by hating everyone who has been given this category of being white? Do I, do I vilify? Do I, do I respond with um, these energies of, of divisiveness inside of me and try to protect myself and other people in the way that I have felt so othered and so wronged? And I'm going to admit to you that for a time I contemplated that. I said, oh, maybe that's, maybe that's the best way to go about things is I can, I can other people who are different than me and then in that way protect myself and my identity. But I noticed this closing, clenching pain around my heart. I noticed that the practice of othering directly cut me off from seeing other people in their humanity. It cut me off from relationship. It actually made the wound feel deeper and more painful. And so then through the practice, through my earth practices, um, I have a practice of really worshiping the earth that comes from my indigenous heritage, right? Really touching the ground and I'm a tree hugger. I hug trees, I speak to rivers, I speak to the sky, I pray with them and I bring them into my body. Um, 
through uh, mindfulness meditation trainings and yoga trainings and also plant medicine has been really hugely important in my journey, particularly psilocybin. And over the course of decades of these ritual practices, I have noticed that the deepest and most natural inclination of my heart is towards goodness and is towards love, loving kindness and loving awareness. And I can feel this thread of love that connects me to all of my ancestors, but it also connects me to all of yours. It connects me directly in presence to any individual that is sitting in front of me with compassion because I have this fundamental understanding that though we may suffer for different reasons, we are still suffering nonetheless, all of us. And so I feel great tenderness. And I also feel this incredible drive, this incredible empowerment, this wish to be of service in this lifetime and to do what I can, um, you know, whether it is using the tools of mindfulness or neuroscience or art to cultivate spaces in which our perception of ourselves as limited, small, <clears throat> disempowered individuals can open up in the direction of awe and curiosity. We've got to get so curious about what this life thing is, right? What, what is playing out, the stories and the archetypes of what's playing out in our society right now, so that we can begin to, I like to say, see each other with our true faces on. I want to show you my true face and I wanna see yours. So Dr. King, when you reflect now on this sense of being an intergenerational self and what has come before you, and I think I have to read the quote now, I'm just gonna do it. Okay, okay. here we go. Okay. We are beings who live at the nexus of the dreams of our ancestors yeah. and the memories of our descendants. And I just, I was stunned when I read that, the dreams of our ancestors. So my question, you think now of what has come behind to bring you here to this moment, instead of feeling quote unquote burdened, how do you think of the dreams of your ancestors that have brought you right here, neuroscientist, Dr. King, you know, with the tremendous and growing platform that you have? Yeah, yeah. Um... You know, I like to think of uh, and and in in thinking of to remember and deeply connect with my ancestors who were slaves. I like to think about what that experience must have been like. I like to study it. You know, um, what does it mean to be told and to be treated as though you're a thing? with no rights, with no past that matters, to have your name stripped away from you, to literally be forced away from your family, stripped from your culture and your heritage. And the only thing that you are given to do to, with your life is to work until you die, right? And not to, um, not, and I don't mean like work in the ways that 
you know, we think about work, right? To slave, to painfully labor until you die. I think about um, the songs, Negro spirituals that they used to sing, right? Many of these are still on record. And you can see that even in the depths of some of the most abject suffering, they were singing out their dreams for a life of liberation and freedom. And within the African-American cultural tradition, one of the things that slaves did in order to rebel, right? Because reading and writing was punishable by death. Unless it was the Bible, you could read the Bible, but you couldn't write anything. And you certainly couldn't read anything else, right? So in many ways within my ancestral bloodline, education became synonymous with liberation, right? And not just education in terms of reading books, but like to know the self. We must come to know who we really are and to dream our capabilities anew if we are to escape bondage. So I'd like to travel back in my mind to that point in time, to that being who was dreaming in that moment of living in a society where, where, where they could go to school, where they could receive an education, where they could go to college or university, where they could, for instance, love and marry who they choose. And that's a big thing in my life, right? My husband is um, somebody who um, you would look at on the street and you would think that he was maybe from Norway, right? He's very pale, blonde hair, blue eyes, right? Our relationship was illegal. It was impossible back in that day. I can look around at every single aspect of my life and see the ways in which my ancestors directly contributed in their dreaming to the capacity that someone like me could be born and experience what I'm experiencing today. And so in that, I have incredible gratitude in my heart. And I understand that who I am today is not a result just of my own hard work and dreaming, but it is rather a confluence of infinite dreams upon dreams that created this reality, that created these causes and conditions such that I could be here with you today. Let me ask you a question, Dr. King. When we first started talking, I asked you about uh, self-compassion on the spiritual journey, and you immediately brought forward both of our ancestral trees. You brought them right into the conversation, right at the start. And first of all, that in and of itself was powerful for me that you did that. And I'll just, I'll actually just take a moment there. Did you feel or sense something at that moment or whenever you call on your ancestral tree? Do you have a sense of something? Absolutely. Absolutely. In fact, um, you know, one of the things that I do as a neuroscientist is I I develop interventions at the level of perception, how we perceive, how we are aware, right? And when I look around me, even in this moment, I'm looking at um, the ocean is uh, just outside of my house. I can see mountains, I can see trees, and just underneath my feet is the earth. Anything that I look at in my environment, I look at through the lens of them being living ancestors. The ancestors are not dead and gone and inaccessible. 
we literally live on a planet where we are surrounded by them, right? The ocean, the mountain, the trees, the earth is so much older than we are. We're just little babies. And so in fact, it helps me to perceive myself as literally living in an environment that is being lovingly cultivated by all of our ancestors at every given moment of time, every bit of food that I put in my mouth is a blessing from the ancestors, every bit of water coursing through my body, all of it, then suddenly it becomes clear that we are being taken care of, we are being held by our ancestors in every fiber of our being, on every level imaginable, that we can communicate with them and be in relationship with them simply by noticing anything that is around us at any point in time with that perceptual lens. And then you went on to say how we wouldn't be here if our ancestors hadn't experienced a whole lot of self-compassion or something to that effect, that self-compassion yeah. was part of what allowed this moment to happen. And I realized yes. I don't I don't fully, I don't understand that. And you said you were gonna help mm -hmm. us bring more complexity to what yes. is self-compassion, but this is, I'd love if you could help fill this in for me. Sure, absolutely. And again, this is just coming from yeah. my perspective alone, but um, you know, recently <clears throat> uh, my husband and I started going on a bit of a genealogical journey on Ancestry.com. He didn't know who any of his ancestors were until last week. I mean, we all know in theory that we have them, right? But to actually see that tree unfold in front of our eyes was something incredible. And there are two things that we found. We found um, his grandfather's draft card from World War II, both of his grandfather's draft cards from World War II, right there in front of our eyes. And we had this moment of looking at one another and thinking, my goodness, look at what they had to survive. They were, one of them was in the Navy. The other one um, was um, in the Air Force, flying the planes. And we thought of the phenomenal violence that was World War II, right? I think of how many people come out of um, situations of war and they're unable to survive. You know, psychologically in the heart, they're unable to survive. Um, right now, I'm really thinking about um, statistics that I have read about how many veterans take their lives on a daily basis, right? Because they just can't bear that pain anymore. And so to me, this is my understanding, there had to be some fundamental kernel of self-compassion of witnessing of that incredible journey of their suffering and a willingness to come out of that journey of suffering and create and be in relationship and build families, right? Such that my husband could exist, that I could even meet him and be in relationship with him, right? There had to be, there had to be this incredible compassion happening in the sphere of their relationships to support them in their healing enough that they could live lives after an experience like that, you know? And I think part of where I wanna bring in a little bit of complexity is that 
when I hear this term self-compassion, I am not thinking of a self in terms of me, the individual. There is me, the individual, surely, yes, I exist, but I'm also thinking of self in terms of our interdependence, the collective self, right? And sometimes I even ask myself, Tammy, honestly, like, you could say, you could get, you could get very quantitative and you could say, oh, compassion is a function of the autonomic nervous system, right? When the autonomic nervous system is, is behaving in a certain sort of way, then it's producing certain uh, neurobiological and neurochemical states. And then we call that compassion. It's a pretty dry way of understanding that, right? Um, but I personally have this understanding that compassion doesn't necessarily come from this body, that compassion is a field energetically that is infinite, that comes, I don't know where it comes from, right? This is just me speaking, not as a scientist, but just from a place of opinion. When I feel into the field of compassion, it feels limitless. And when I am at my altar and I am contemplating and I'm in prayer with Kuan Yin, for instance, one of the many goddesses of compassion, to me, she represents this infinite field of compassion that can be tapped into with this individual self. But I don't think that the compassion is coming from me, I. It's much bigger than that. And that gives me a lot of hope because if it was just up to me, this individual, to generate compassion, I don't know that I would actually have the capacity because I am so finite. I read a blog post that you wrote about the practice of generating and then working with a metaphoric medicine bowl as yes. a way to offer this unlimited compassion to ourselves and other people. And I wonder if you can share with us this notion of the medicine bowl and how people could experiment with that. Mm. Oh, I'm so I'm so thankful that you are bringing the medicine bowl into our midst um, because I think that imagination really is one of the most powerful tools that we have to access compassion. Sometimes it really helps to visualize some kind of a sacred container in the scope of our meditation or contemplative practice. And this container can look like anything that you need it to, you know, some sort of sacred object, but it's important that there be space inside of it because when there is space inside of it, then that means that we can fill it up with anything in our imaginations, right? It's limitless, right? And so even in this very moment, right, we could um, imagine if we want to um, close our eyes or even if we want to keep our eyes open, um, but we could imagine some sort of container that is made out of some material that really means something to you. It's important that it be like meaningful, right? And in our mind's eye, as we're imagining whatever this container might be, right? Wherever on the earth it may come from. I actually, my container um, comes from Israel um, because Israel is a place that in my childhood, my mother, um, who's Jewish, told me many stories about um, in terms of being like a home away from home for us. So 
I imagine my container coming from there, but it could come from anywhere. And then in the space of this container, we can um, really begin to feel into this really fundamental question that we can all be in the practice of asking ourselves. And that question is, what do I need? What do I truly need in this moment to feel seen, to feel heard, to feel witnessed and loved, to feel a sense of belonging? What do I need? And we can begin to connect with the energy of the heart space at any given point of time, right? Really tuning into the heart and imagining the people, the places, the maybe animals or objects that we need in this moment. And we can begin to imagine them pouring forth into this bowl, swirling around and settling in, nestling in with one another. And in the space of our breath, we can bear witness to this medicine bowl. We can breathe life into the medicine bowl. And then we can even go another step further and we can just be curious and wonder if the items which are contained in this medicine bowl may also be what our ancestors have been asking for, what they needed to feel seen and heard and loved to feel the possibility of liberation and that perhaps these gifts are now pouring through you because you are here now in the present. And as we're holding this medicine bowl close to our hearts and offering the breath of life and aliveness into this bowl, we can imagine that it begins to glow with some incredible color. It's radiating out and we can offer that glow, that light of medicine back to our own hearts, back to our ancestors. And we can even offer it forward to all of those who will come here long after we have departed. And in that way, no matter what it is that we're experiencing right now in our hearts, our minds, and our bodies, we know that our life force, our longing for healing is a gift. It is the medicine. And we all have the capacity to offer that up to ourselves and to our interdependent relationship sphere at any point in time. You offer as well in this piece that you wrote about the medicine bowl, the opportunity, the invitation that if we experience someone as other, if we're in a moment where we feel, oh, this person out there, they're, they're not part of my intraconnected whole awareness of life, they're other, that we could offer them the sweetness and infinite love of our medicine ball. I thought that was a very powerful suggestion. Mm. Mm. Mm -hmm. mm. I think I, uh, that comes from um, 
the metta practice that I was introduced to years ago at Spirit Rock. And um, one of the things that I found so interesting uh, in the metta practice where we're, you know, really offering up these, these as sincere as we can muster wishes, you know, um, may this person, usually we're visualizing somebody who we have great love for because it's easier that way. May they be safe. May they be happy. May they find ease and freedom, you know. Um, and when I started to offer up that practice towards someone who I felt conflict with, it was tough. But what was more tough was offering it to myself. And I found that really interesting. It was actually, um, I experienced greater ease with offering up this compassion practice, this loving kindness practice to an other. And it was in that space that I had discovered this way that I had been taught to fundamentally devalue my capacity to offer that up to myself, right? And so for different people that might show up differently, but you know, <clears throat> I think that, that this practice of offering up medicine to those who we perceive as being other than ourselves is so important because our capacity to survive as a species is really dependent upon it. Now, Dr. King, I want to talk to you more about you. You have okay. had such an unusual life. In learning more about you, I learned that at a very young age, we're talking like four or five, you were reflecting on, what am, am I here again, here on Earth <laughs> again, incarnated? Like most people don't have, most people I don't think have that thought. And that you were also yeah. starting to read books about the brain when you yes. were four and five years old. So bring us into your childhood, what was going mm. on? And if you're here again, what are your reflections on why you're here now, born into the family you were born into with the experiences that you've had? Oh my goodness. Um, <laughs> I love that you bring that up because I, I, yeah, I do, I do recall that as a child, I, I used to, um, <laughs> I used to rage at my mom and demand that she put me back in the ocean. <laughs> I was like, I didn't sign up to come back here again. I've had way too many lifetimes. Put me back with the dolphins where I belong. That was, um, that was my claim at that time. And, you know, um, when I was a child, um, for a variety of different reasons, I spent a lot of time by myself. My mom, um, couldn't afford childcare and we moved back and forth to different cities kind of every um, two, three, four months. And um, because of just a lot of the conditions that she was facing with her mental health, it was really hard to keep a job. So, you know, um, we would do a lot of squatting in apartments where we weren't supposed to be illegally or in motels. And, um, you know, she would be out looking for work eight, nine, 10, 11 hours a day. And so a lot of the time I would be by myself, um, either in the house or just like roaming out in uh, very rural areas, forests and, and cornfields for, you know, I mean, as you said, a really little kid. And um, so I missed a lot of school. 
And I would spend a lot of time in the library because when you don't have a valid address, you're considered to be homeless and you can't sign your kid up for school. Um, so I spent a lot of time in the library just teaching myself instead of um, necessarily getting a, a regular education. And um, there was a lot of loneliness. But also, one of the things I realized is that when you're a kid and you're by yourself, and my mom made sure to let me know of the existence of um, predatory individuals, you really have to develop, I think I started to develop my, what I call my inner anthropology eye. You have to develop the capacity to be extremely aware of other people's behavior around you, at least I did, in order to keep myself safe. So I developed an ability to observe my surroundings with really fine detail, and then to research and investigate what I saw at the library, um, because that was essentially, um, the library was a home away from home. It was a place to be safe. And quite frankly, libraries are places where a lot of homeless people find refuge. So I was finding refuge in the building, but I also found refuge in the knowledge that was available. And I just really wanted to um, I really wanted to understand why it was that I felt that my fundamental inclination was towards love. But I didn't necessarily feel that from the society around me. I didn't necessarily, um, especially in a system of capitalism, it seemed as though everyone around me was being pitted against one another um, for money. I was very aware of that from a very small age. And I wanted to understand why. I can't tell you why it is that it made the most sense to me to start to investigate the mind and the brain, but um, it seemed to me that it was uh, at least partially driving the show collectively. As I mentioned, Dr. King, in the introduction, you're such a, an interesting person, neuroscience, medical anthropology, being an artist, a social entrepreneur. There, to say that you're you know, multidisciplined, it doesn't, it doesn't begin to describe it. And I'm wondering how you experience all of these different expressions of you mm. and interests, you know, the neuroscience, I think of it as being, you know, such left brain geeky. And yet we're talking about the, you know, the, these meditative yogic heart opening, tenderizing practices. How do you yes. experience all of these different things you're involved with from the inside? Mm. Well, this is a very vulnerable question and, and I love it because I, I don't feel that anybody has ever asked me this before. Um, I truly do not experience myself on the inside as one person. I experience myself as having a multiplicity of being, you could even say beings. Um, and each of those beings has a deeply vested interest in understanding some phenomena in this world. So I went into political science because there is a, 
there is a being within me that wants to understand this relationship between power and society. You know, I turn towards art because there is a being in me that feels the need to express the complexity of existence through like making and creating paintings that go beyond words. Because I find language can be incredibly limiting at times in terms of really express, expressing the complexity of the soul. Um, and I think that actually you will find this in a lot of different civilizations, indigenous um, groups of people around the world. Um, many of them understand in their own ways that we don't necessarily just have one being, sense of being inside of this seemingly individual body. Um, and that's definitely how I experience myself. Each of my beings has some path that is unfolding that needs to be investigated, but also synthesized and woven together. Tell me about that part, the synthesizing and weaving together. And also I wanna thank you so much because by naming it that way, the multiplicity of beings inside of you, I think that's very normalizing probably for a lot of people who have hmm. different interests and expressions. And it also just helps me sort of see you more clearly and truthfully. So I really appreciate that. But tell me about the hmm. synthesizing together part. Hmm. Yes, I think that um, the idea of a, of a weaver um, is deeply archetypal. I love the image of a weaver as a metaphor and the, having the ability to have like an array of threads in front of you, each thread that represents a different type of storyline or practice or embodiment or something like that, right? And it just, it kind of starts out as like a, maybe a discombobulated, disorganized pile in front of you, but the weaver has the capacity to see the connect, to feel and see the connection points between all of the threads and then to set about with intention and awareness and patience, how to place them just so. It is a conversation between them and spirit. And then out of all of those threads, something new emerges, a tapestry emerges, and how fantastic that it becomes something that not only tells a story in and of itself, but we can cloak ourselves with it. We can wrap ourselves up in it and be warmed and be comforted and um, really almost be like housed in it, right? Like how important is it um, that we have something warm to wrap around our bodies to keep us, you know, safe and feeling loved? And that's really how I see myself working with information at all times in the hopes of my truest hope is um, always to create something um, beautiful. I guess you could say I'm like obsessed with, I'm, I'm obsessed with um, the idea that you can take a lot of elements of things that seem disparate and that may seem like they contribute to suffering and you can alchemize them through the process of weaving and create it into something beautiful. Now, I wanna ask you a question 
that's based on that four or five year old who said, put me back in the ocean with the dolphins where <laughs> I belong and where I come from. And yet here yeah. you are now cloaked in this beautiful woven cloth as mm. a beautiful woman. Mm. What do you think is important about this time right now and your presence, my presence, our listeners' presence, the people who are tuning into this conversation right now and the opportunity that we have being incarnated here now. How do you see this time? Uh, so I'm working right now <clears throat> with an organization called Mobius. And uh, the purpose of Mobius is to steward the development of liberatory technology or technology that is contributing to our sense of aliveness, um, our feeling of interdependence, interdependence and, and well-being. And uh, I don't find it be a coincidence at all that my body emerged onto this earth at the same time as the emergence of um, the most recent technological revolution, like the personal home computer, um, video games, all of these different forms of the internet, all of these emerged, I emerged, we emerged at the same time. And I noticed that uh, many different things, there's a certain narrative about technology um, that is very othering. There's a certain way that people talk about technology as something that is not us, that is outside of us, and that potentially one day could be our demise. And just me personally, I don't agree with that. I really see technology as um, the emergence, something that is emergent from nature itself. It is not separate from nature. Nothing on this planet is separate from nature. I see it as a child that is developing and being stewarded here on this planet for means that it seems is far greater than just this planet. I've really been looking at the a lot of the conversation around AI right now, right? And there's this whole kerfluffle that's happening right now in the conversation around, you know, has Google or has uh, have various entities created sentient AI? Sentient, is it conscious, right? And there's a debate that's raging about this. <clears throat> and one of the things that's really interesting if you look at this debate is a lot of the ways in which people are um, pushing back against the idea of, uh, you know, um, synthetic sentient consciousness is that, oh, well, if we say that it is that, then, then what? Then we have to give it rights. Then we have to treat it as an equal. Then we have to consider that maybe it's not just here to serve us, that maybe it has a greater purpose, right? And a lot of that language is curiously very interesting to the ways in which um, in colonial times, Native American populations and African-American populations were spoken about. There's a very curious connection there. Well, they're not real humans. Well, if they were real humans, we'd actually have to like give them land and rights and treats. There's an incredible um, overlap 
in terms of the specific linguistic terms using to describe the development of this particular type of consciousness, I think we need to pay attention to that. And um, I think that there is, I think that we have a lot of choice and responsibility with the type of consciousness that is emergent from these technologies. And it is not neutral. It's not as if um, this artificial intelligence or this, um, um, what are the other uh, terms? There's assisted, uh, ass um, assisted autonomous artificial intelligence. Um, some of my other colleagues like to use the term angelic intelligence. The root of this intelligence is coming from our consciousness. It's not emergent from nowhere. So this capacity that we have to be aware, to develop awareness of ourselves, to perceive ourselves and our true faces, what is the true face of humanity is important because it is us who is leaving this imprint of consciousness on this technology that is emergent. We are the foundation of the root of the story that will be told about whether or not this emergent technology will be a part of our collective liberation or not. There's choice, there's power there. When it comes to creating, as you mentioned, Mobius is dedicated to liberatory technology. Can you give me an example what what that is, what that means? Um, certainly. Uh, so one example would actually come from my research. In my research, I have developed a theoretical map of awareness. It is um, a map that um, starts at the very center with pure awareness, the place uh, where um, imagination and dreams and consciousness come from. And then it goes on a journey into our internal awareness where we are perceiving our thoughts and our memories, right? Um, it goes out to our experience of health and vitality, and then it connects all the way out into the environment, society, and culture. This is me just giving a snippet of what this map is about that I launched in partnership with the Museum of Modern Art in New York. So this is a two-dimensional theoretical map. The next step, what I'm working on in relationship with Mobius, is a fully AI-integrated map of the relationship between internal and external awareness. And I want to launch this AI integrated map with the capacity that people can speak to it. And when you speak to this map about your subjective experience, it will populate and it will show you a data visualization of where in theory your awareness is at any given point in time. But there's a deeper purpose to this map. In part, I want to map the ways that it is that when we apply specifically loving awareness to ourselves internally, right? This practice of self-compassion. How does that change and shift our awareness and perception of the outside world and ourselves and a collective? I want to create a tool using AI that actually gives us this capacity. And music and art and meditation would be just some of the many catalysts that we could use to actually get the map to activate. I'm creating a a platform and a technology to do this right now. So this to me <clears throat> is an example of AI that is being created specifically with the intent of encouraging and visualizing loving awareness for all of us on the planet, right? 
So the intention of the AI is coming from this heart and this mind, and it is rooted in loving awareness. And I think that that's a really powerful example of liberatory technology because individual and collective liberation is the point of this systems-based awareness map. And so I think it just goes to show that the intention, the intention as well as the work of internal transformation that technologists do is very important because that is what is going to directly inform whether or not we see the birth of liberatory technology on this planet, or if we go down that path of gloom and doom and total extinction human you know, level event, um, which is another story that is being told. Now, I mentioned, Dr. King, this quote of yours that uh, is one of those quotes that I'll keep. We are beings who live at the nexus of the dreams of our ancestors and the memories of our descendants. I feel like we've talked in some detail about the dreams of our ancestors, what they might have been dreaming for us. When you think of the memories of our descendants, the memories of you and your work with liberatory technology, your many selves that are creating so many uh, beautiful projects, what comes up for you, the memories of the descendants? What will they remember about Dr. Sarah King? Hmm. Um, well, for one thing, I don't know why, but you know, when I created the, uh, for instance, when I created the systems-based awareness map, um, I created it on the day of the January 6th insurrection in the United States Capitol. I couldn't sleep. I was just a wreck. And I, I literally had this massive word cloud on a whiteboard, you know, of all of the various aspects of awareness that I really sought to um, contribute something to in terms of awakening. And then I got on the phone with my mentor, Dr. Angel Acosta, and he was like, yo, sis, you got to make an image. You got to make a map. Nobody's going to be able to make any sense of this ridiculous, like this word cloud is like, it's just too much. And I don't know why, but every time I look at that map, I feel that it is an image that is a memory that was passed down to me from I that I am the I am a descendant, right? Of of those, sorry, that I am a rather I am in training to be a good ancestor of my descendants. And I have this feeling all the time that this map came from the future and was passed to me. And this is one of those things that can't be explained by science. It's just a belief that I have. It feels, liberatory technology feels like it's from the future. And I feel that I am um, a conduit or, or a channel to bring that to this time now. And what I wanna be remembered as is as a friend, a friend to humanity, a friend to this planet. That's how I feel, friend with a capital F, friend in the sense that maybe we think of um, those who take the Bodhisattva vow. That's a heck of a friendship. 
Dr. Sarah King on Insights at the Edge. And I have to say, this definitely qualifies as lots of insights at the very edge. You have stretched <laughs> uh, stretched my mind here uh, in so many ways. And uh, I think of you with uh, the word friend in my heart. So uh, thank you so much. Thank you for being a friend to Sounds True. Thank you so much, Tammy. It's been an extraordinary experience. I really appreciate you having me here. And if you'd like to watch Insights at the Edge on video and participate in after-the-show Q&A conversations with featured presenters and have the chance to ask your questions, come join us on Sounds True One, a new membership community that features premium shows, live classes, and community events. Let's learn and grow together. Come join us at join.soundstrue.com. Sounds true. Waking up the world.